Greetings, dear listeners. Fun episode this week with our friend Osita Nwanevu of New Republic fame. We had the idea to have Osita on to talk about Ron DeSantis, Trump, and the Republican Party. But the conversation went way more broad than that. It turned to democracy, institutions, the people, and what ails both America and the world. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation for paying subscribers only. I reach for my darkest pessimism on democracy as a challenge to Shadi and Osita. But the episode ends up on a surprisingly optimistic note. To become a paying subscriber, go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and support our work. On to the show. ask you about uh, the Lenin book to hide your face <laughs> yeah I mean I, I I sometimes I I decide whether or not to keep it up depending on like what I'm doing an interview for whether it's gonna be too distracting or whatever I mean right next to it is like a book about Queen Victoria I've read neither of them this is just books that people have, um, that I've gotten I guess over the course of working for different places you know people just give away free books sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. so I have yet to read the Leiden biography but it seems who wrote it well I'm almost good? tempted to uh... Victor Sebastian oh don't know says. don't know yeah Osita I'm almost tempted since we're on the topic to ask you what you think about Lenin but maybe we can save that for another I... time no I mean I, I like democracy so if you like democracy Lenin is not uh not really a role model. Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, I don't know. You know, it's it's, it's pretty uh, straightforward. <laughs> it's, I can't, I can't I, call I myself a, a, an expert on the Russian Revolution, but no, but 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 you know, it, it's a it's a funny thing how, um, yeah, the, the the Soviets in particular, but but just in general, I mean, Putin, right, himself is a master uh, of repurposing the concept of democracy. The Chinese are doing mm -hmm. it themselves right now. You know, they, they talk about sure. what real democracy is and things like that. Um, and, and you can say that, you know, uh, Putin's stuff is in bad faith. Um, and I think feel pretty good about that because he is, you know, it's, it's really just personalized thug rule and uh, uh, sort of gangsterism. But, but in the sort of ideology of, of Chinese communism, the idea of true democracy—it's um, not—it's not just a throwaway for them, you know. I mean, I, I don't think we need to get into this, but it is interesting to me, right? Is that that like yeah. uh, what we when we talk about democracy, uh, we obviously talk about it in in sort of strict strict terms that are understandable to us and and reflect our sort of stuff. But but you know, I mean, democracy means all sorts of things uh, in the very in the very broad thing because it gets back to like what is the will of the people, right? Sure, sure. Well, so I, I, let's put a pin on that because, I, bef, um, you know, as we're starting, I just wanted to maybe give listeners some context so they know what's going on here. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation because Osita is a is a friend of the pod. He's been on once before, but interestingly, we're part of the same reading group, and I think you and I have been in the same reading group for maybe like, I don't know, three years, if if not slightly longer. Yeah. And so we've gotten into a lot of debates and discussions, but the cool thing is I'm not exactly sure what you're going to say over the next hour or so. 
And that's a really good thing to talk to someone and not really know ahead of time exactly where they'll they'll fall on some key issues and debates. I guess it would be fair to right. say that we do have some political differences, and I think this is very much in the spirit of wisdom wisdom of crowds. Just a few. <laughs> Just a few, exactly. I do Bro. remember this funny moment. I don't know if Demir was there in reading group where I had been saying something and you had this almost eureka moment of realizing something about me. And I think you, to paraphrase, you said something like, oh my God, Shadi, you're a postmodernist. <laughs> Or something like that, or you're like a Foucaultian critical theorist, postmodernist, something, something to that effect. Yeah. Um, he so meant relativist, lot. right? I think that's what, what what's meant by that. I wasn't there. I wasn't there for that that moment. But I appreciated. I didn't ask too many questions. I can't remember. But, I, uh, you know, I can't remember what it was specifically about, but I think it was it 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 had something to do with this thing that I've noticed among a lot of people on the, in the center when it comes to debates about wokeness or um political correctness and all of that i feel like i see people making positions or articulating positions from the center that they don't realize are relativist positions um if you just sort of follow them down a specific line of argument people who will tell you that they are for hard categories and a kind of set understanding of right and wrong and you know the natural order of things and so on will find themselves saying things that are indistinguishable in many ways from the kinds of sentiments that they dislike uh, when coming from postmodernists. I mean, you, Shadi, are, are a unique case because you actually openly say that you're a fan of like Chantal Mouffe, right? So yeah. that's, that's, not, that's not like a, a standard thinker that you see being cited by the, uh, the Andrew Sullivans of, of the world. So I think in, in that sense, you're already kind of, I don't know, you have inclinations in that direction. Oh, cool. Okay, thank you. Thank hey, you. Is Sullivan, a, is Sullivan a relativist? You think? I was neither good or bad. I'm just observing. Just saying. Is Sullivan a relativist? I mean, you know, I I don't know. Andrew Shadi knows him a little better, right? But like, it's he he. I, I was struck by what you said there about like right and wrong. I mean, I don't know. He's he's a at least avowedly religious person. So his right and wrong right. is something, uh, or that he can at least point to. You think he ends up as a... He's an, avowedly, a... he's an avowedly religious person who denigrates religion when he thinks that it is a word that you can use to describe progressives. Right? Mm -hmm. So in, in Andrew Sullivan's hands, religion is this noble, you know, noble thing, ennobling thing. Uh, it gives people clear commitments. It stabilizes society. Uh, it establishes boundaries for good and bad behavior and so on. Uh, when Andrew Sullivan is a religious person, that, that's, that's, that's a great thing. When people who care about racism or sexism or transphobia um, avow themselves or avail themselves of kind of religious ways of thinking or what Andrew Sullivan sees as religious practice, uh, that's something that's very scary. I don't really think that you know the wokeness as a religion thing makes a lot of sense but if you if you take it seriously i think that there is a double-mindedness about religion and how good it is that come from comes from that camp so that's i guess that's kind of what i mean but i can't i can't remember exactly what we were talking about you know in that so particular I think, discussion shoddy yeah so i think you know i'm somewhat similar to sullivan on this particular point that i think religion is good and i you know i talk about that a lot but i do criticize 
wokeness as being religion without religion, that it sort of mimics the certainties of religion without having its metaphysics and its God-centeredness, if you will. But mm -hmm. I suppose that's a, you know, that's a, a longer discussion. Before we get off track with wokeness, I want to make sure that we start on kind of what's in the news, but we want to obviously dig a lot deeper and get to some of the foundational assumptions here. Is the GOP irredeemable? I maybe start with that. I've been part of this pretty charged debate over whether Ron DeSantis is a fascist or not. And I wrote a post about that on my Substack. but Damon Linker, another previous guest, has written quite a bit on that and has, I think, been at the center of this debate. Um, but you're obviously, um, I mean, I think we're all critics of the GOP. I mean, some people will say that, you know, I'm not a real critic or whatever, but I think none of us like the GOP. And as far as I know, none of us, um, uh, you know, would vote for the GOP, um, at least for the foreseeable future. So I think that, uh, you know, where do you stand on some of these bigger questions about how we should view the GOP as you know one of our two parties, and you've you've written in the Guardian about how you think Trump has a pretty good chance of getting the nomination over DeSantis. But I think from your perspective, the GOP as a whole is is sort of bad and perhaps even irredeemable, like on a deeper structural level beyond the question of whether it's Trump or DeSantis. But feel free to push back if I've mischaracterized Sure. That. No, I think that's right. I mean, I've written a piece for the New Republic um, some time ago. I and the GOP. This was. And is the that GOP, the one? That's right. Yeah, that's the one. So in that piece, I argued that the Republican Party's institution, well beyond Donald Trump, uh, has to be understood as a threat to the stability of our political system. Um, and I, I take care in that piece to say I'm talking about the Republican Party as an institution. Um, and not necessarily about conservative ideology as a whole. Um, there are different, you know, ways you can be a conservative. Uh, you know, even if you wanted to, you couldn't snap your fingers in a country as large and diverse and free as we are, and sort of eliminate, you know, conservatism from from the public discourse. You know, even as, me as a leftist, I, I don't think that's worth thinking about. We're always going to have conservatives, but the Republican Party. Uh, contemporary Republican Party in the United States, I think, has shown clear signs of being a real threat to the durability and stability of our political institutions for some time now. And that's, that's before Trump. Uh, everything that we dislike about Trump, whether it's, uh, you know, these conspiracy theories about voter fraud, whether it's the way that he talks about, characterizes immigrants um, and, and Muslims, um, whether it's his kind of bravado and machismo and you know, his, his whole manner of existing in politics. I think all of that has precedents within Republican politics um, that are very clear. Um, people write a lot now about Pat Buchanan in the 90s. I think this is like one of the early iterations of, uh, of this kind of politics in the contemporary party. Um, all of us experienced the Obama administration there was a lot going on there that didn't have anything to do with Donald Trump that yet signaled um, the kinds of forces he would be able to take advantage of uh, in his run for the presidency. So as long as those forces, those impulses remain unchecked, and I don't see any reason to believe that they're getting checked, 
Um, I, I would say that the Republican Party as a whole is is a very dangerous thing as we're experiencing it now. Um, whether it's redeemable, irredeemable, I, I don't know if I use those words because I'm not really sure what it would mean to be redeemed, but it's a kind of practical political reality. There are things that are happening in the Republican Party now um, that are very, very troubling to anybody who cares about democratic rights, uh, who anybody who cares about the, the rights and well-being of minorities. Um, there's there's a lot to be troubled by. Osita, why do you why do you? I've been struck by um, this idea that to me, especially we're watching right now in the news the um, the uh, revelations about Fox and uh, you know the the stuff coming out in that Dominion lawsuit. Um, really fun uh, text messages from Tucker Carlson uh, disavowing Trump, saying can't wait to get rid of him. Uh, the rest of that. I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, that you're putting this on an, the institution of the party when at least the Fox stuff has made me think that it's much less any institution that's perpetuating this, but that there's something inherent in the people here that, that like, you know, I, I, I'm also reminded of the fact that Trump, uh, you know, at some point tried to, to steer his mob uh, into saying, well, actually, you know, Operation Warp Speed and, and, uh, and the vaccines were, were something we should be proud of. We did this and completely was unable to do that. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, that's it's 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 the sense that 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 these people are riding a tiger at this point. Not so much mm -hmm. that that the institution is rotten. I mean, the institution may well be rotten because it's riding the tiger. That's fine. But the tiger is the thing, not the institution, not the rider. And 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 um, I, right. I, that's, I guess, I guess what's what I've been thinking of, um, you know, in recent days, watching all of this happen. And then again, rereading some of your older pieces on this. Um, that's 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 what I sort of would love to hear you th think through at this point. Demir, is it, are you suggesting that the tiger is the crowd? Yeah, the wise tiger. Exactly, Shadi. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, so when I say institution, Republican Party is an institution, I should clarify that I'm not just talking about like the RNC, right? I'm talking about the kind of network of connected groups, institutions um, that form up the Republican Party's political apparatus. Including you might include Fox, Fox News yeah. in that. Yeah. yeah, you might include Fox News in that. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, you know, as I said, like there are always going to be conservative people in a country as large, diverse, and free um, as this. There are always going to be people who have views that I think are crazy. Um, I all this talk about misinformation, you know, this idea that if we just tweaked Facebook and Twitter um, in the right kinds of ways, then people would stop believing uh, crazy, kooky things about Democrats. I think that's kind of nonsense. I think you're always going to have, and you've always had, misinformation and crazy ideas circulating amongst the electorate, both on the right and, and on the left. So, you know, the, obviously the organic views of conservatives in this country matter a lot. Um, I think they do matter, to your point, more than people give them credit for. It's, it's not the case that Fox News has created, you know, a right wing in this country. At the same time, if you look at polling on, you know, racial attitudes in this country, for instance, over the last 10 years or so, um, you know, I, I've been struck by the fact that whenever you look at those numbers, um, you see a kind of move to the left on racial issues, not just amongst 
the general public, not just amongst Democrats, but even amongst Republicans. Republicans now are more willing to say that discrimination is a, you know, a important force in American society, that bad things happen when the police interact with African-Americans than they were 10, 20 years ago. And that sounds like a crazy thing to say, you know, if you take it out in isolation, it sounds surprising, but it really shouldn't be. Like, obviously, all of American society is not as racist as it was in 1950, 1960, 1970, right? Um, and yet, we have on the right a kind of reversion to this exclusionary, uh, bigoted politics that I think is not the kind of politics you would expect from a country that's had its social and cultural views change as much as they have over the last 20 or so years. Um, I think that the Republican Party's major figures, its politicians, its, its cable news, none of that, I think, is directly reflective of the actual preferences of Republican voters. You see this even with gun control, right? So like it's, it's, it's this thing that gets written about anytime somebody debates gun control. Well, you know, most gun owners would support this and that uh, sensible check or sensible policy like background checks, you know, uh, but we don't get them in our politics. Why is that? Even Republican support, even if even, you know, gun owners support it. It's because there's this disconnect, right? Um, and I think that that disconnect exists partially for structural reasons. So like we have primaries in this country that determine who the major candidates are, um, who are the people that got to vote in primaries and who affect that process the most. These are the activists in each party's um, coalition, right? They're the people who go out there, who gather up the votes, who, who know that the primary is important, who know when they are, and, and are always going to be there. Um, I think that matters a lot in shaping the kinds of politicians we get, and, and thus the kind of political discourse we get. Uh, the fact that Republicans enjoy such a structural advantage when it comes to the Senate, um, and right now, this goes back and forth, but right now the Electoral College, that means that there is less of a penalty for extremist language on the right than there is on the left, right? You can get away with a little bit more. It's because Republicans have this inbuilt cushioning when it comes to the political, um, when it comes to the electoral system. So I think those things matter. And, and you know, again, these are, you know, institutional concerns, right? These are institutional problems. It's not the full gamut of them. Um, but, you know, I think that there are empowered decision makers on the right who are making things a lot worse than I really have to be, even given the fact that there are always going to be a lot of conservative people in America. Isn't it also the case, though, that we can say that, so for example, Ron DeSantis in, in Florida does seem to be pretty popular. Yeah. Um, and he does channel sentiments that many, if not the va you know, perhaps even the vast majority of Republicans hold. And I think this is where some of the woke issues become relevant if we see the GOP as basically like a reactionary culture war organization that lost the culture war, but is now trying to, you know, mount, you know, some degree of resistance. And essentially, I think one way of looking at DeSantis in Florida is to say that he wants to use state power to reverse progressive gains on cultural issues, including things like trans rights and certain things that are taught in publicly funded universities. He's illiberal and he wants to, and I think Damon Linker made a version of this argument that DeSantis wants to use democracy, not use, but he, 
he's participating in democracy. He hasn't violated any any of the procedural aspects of the system, but he's using his democratic power and legitimacy as someone who was voted into office to fight ideological liberalism. And I think that looking at it that way, I think I think there's an argument to be made that more Americans than we might think support that kind of pushback. I mean, we have seen how Hispanics um, have left the Democratic Party in significant numbers. Tim Alberta wrote that piece in The Atlantic last year about that, but also Arabs, Muslims, and to you know lesser degree, lesser degree um, black men. How do you, what do you make of that? That there is a kind of backlash against the cultural elite, and that's what the Republican Party is really channeling right now. Well, I think it might be true in Florida. I think that the general national test of that came in the midterms when Republicans dramatically underperformed, despite the fact that they focused on a lot of culture war issues. So in places like South Texas, where you saw in 2020, this erosion amongst Democrats uh, in Hispanic communities, people said, oh, you know, this is Hispanics uh, reacting uh, strongly to the Democratic Party's left-wing cultural turn. Well, it turns out a lot of those districts or those regions um, actually went back to the Democrats and those voters went back to the Democrats in the midterm elections. Um, so I, I don't dispute the fact that that is a shift that might be happening, but I think its extent is a little bit more complicated and maybe overstated in some of the coverage. Um, you saw a lot of Republicans put a lot of money behind transgender issues, transgender athletes uh, across the country. Uh, those efforts flopped. I think that somebody in the Michigan Republican Party was quoted as saying that they, you know, they think that, you know, Republicans should never run on this issue again because it was such a such a failure. Um, so you know, states are different, regions are different. I, Florida is a increasingly conservative state for a number of reasons. Uh, it's an old state, state with you know, its Hispanic population is significantly derived from Cuba. Obviously, they have hus- real hostility to socialism uh, and and what they perceive as socialism for not a lot of reasons. So it's this unique place um, where somebody like Ron DeSantis can do very well. When it comes to whether or not he can succeed nationally, you know, I don't discount the possibility that he could win an election. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's possible. Um, I think the Republican Party in general is capable of winning popular majorities. And it's capable of winning them partially too, as you suggest, in the part, partially on the basis of culture war backlash. So tw- 2004, you know, George W. Bush wins a legitimate majority of the country. One of the big issues in that campaign was gay marriage. Republicans thought it was going to be a, a it was going to be a wedge issue, and they exploited it. I, I don't dispute that those things uh, can happen, but I don't know that we can understand where the right is going right now, purely as the product of a genuine popular animus towards left wing cultural politics. Again. You know, if you look at the actual surveys that were done on racial justice issues, on trans issues, and so on, you know, there are positions that aren't necessarily popular amongst majority of the public that the left takes. Um, but also, like, where was the American public on transgender issues in 2003 or 2013? Like, there's been, I think there's been a genuine cultural shift happening here um, that's, you know, I, I don't know that it, it's something that's being forced upon the American people in the way that somebody like Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump uh, would argue. I think that the real one of the real things that's undergirding 
DeSantis' popularity, frankly, um, and his potential as a candidate, as, as frightening as he is, is this idea that there is a deep gulf between him ideologically and Donald Trump. I think that's really helping him as far as his general election prospects are concerned, right? We've made all of this noise about how Trump is terrible, how he's a unique threat to American democracy, and so on. A lot of those things were true. I think a lot of that alarm was justified, definitely. Um, but if you don't have this wider analysis and you know, you're know you not taken with the argument that I made earlier about the Republican Party as a whole being dangerous, somebody like Ron DeSantis comes along and you as the voters say, well, this guy isn't Donald Trump. Uh, he doesn't talk like Donald Trump. He doesn't look like Donald Trump. He seems like you know any number of Republican politicians that I'm entirely used to. So I guess that means that he's a pretty normal guy and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for him. And this is going to be turning the page away from how terrible politics were under Donald Trump. That, I think, is what DeSantis can credit a lot of his viability and his potential as a general election candidate to. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see so many Republican elites moving towards him. Um, as I wrote in that Guardian piece, I'm not sure that that is enough to win him the nomination, uh, but he could. And if he wins a nomination, I would say that he has a better chance of being elected than Donald Trump does for that very reason. You know, one thing I'd maybe, I don't know if I'd, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Osita, but I quibble with other parts. Um, I think, I think you know, the part that you're right on uh, things that are losers for the GOP um, things I think even short to medium term, I think you're, you're citing statistics on race are, uh, I think that's telling and right. Um, and I, I think that, that the trans issue too, uh, you know, once it, it sort of gets out of activist mode is a natural loser for Republicans because what you're dealing with there is our questions about, um, inclusion within society. And, this being a diverse and big country, most people, you know, know, you know, it's not, it's not, it's no longer, it's, it's a jumble. And, and, you know, just like uh, gay marriage came around because everyone had someone in the family who's gay, uh, you know, I, I think uh, since uh, the civil rights movement uh, with segregation, everything else, it's just, it's, it's a much more mixed society. So it's much harder to exclude people you come into contact with all the time. So I, 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 you know, I think that a lot of this woke stuff probably isn't enough for the GOP, I think. I do think, though, that, that it comes down to different things, though. And, and, you know, you try and sort of pick out why Trump won when he did. Um, Hillary, uh, not galvanizing opponent. She, like, I think a, a half-competent Democrat would have knocked him out of, like, much, you know, a much more galvanizing Democrat would have knocked him out sooner. But, but also immigration, because... You know, that's a division issue that's easy to sort of make the case for. It's like those people aren't us. They're from out there. So we, we keep them out. So, you know, that, that that's a natural limit that a certain kind of, you know, uh, call it broader Republican strategy of us versus them, I think hits really hard. And the kind of idealism that, that, that undergirds sort of the liberal dream, uh, I think falls short there and, and voters sort of, you know, are, are easier to, to sort of mobilize around something like that. And I think that's really one of the big mm -hmm. reasons why Trump won when he did. Um, and, you know, you look at what he's going to 
do now, and I, I agree with you, I think he's going to be the, the candidate I, I at this point. I mean, it's early times. Who knows what will happen? Maybe he croaks, you know, maybe just ends up in jail somehow. I don't know. We'll see. Shoot someone on 7th Avenue and, and Fifth whatever. Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue. Sorry. And uh, um, but uh, and, and I, I do think that if that happens, I think it's the greatest gift to Obama, uh, to Obama, to, to Biden. I mean, I've I've I felt I felt to that Obama, too. But to Obama as well. But I mean, uh, to Democrats, yeah. ultimately, because yeah. because, you know, the midterms were a successful uh, test of brand the Republican Party as a party of Trump, which, you know, they were because they also had to take a lot of his candidates that he was championing and the rest of that. So it's it's, uh, you know, that's all good. But, you know, it, it still gets to that 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 question to me about. I feel like what undergirds, I think, a lot of your approach to this stuff is this idea that, you know, uh, that there is a kind of, um, how do I put it? Maybe, like, is it? would you say that there's a progressive consensus that can be had in this country rather than a kind of, where I would see it, is that it's still going to be a, a kind of, you know, uh, center-right country that, you know, can be mobilized a lot around certain issues that are uh, maybe even at the limits still troubling to uh, to a lot of sort of liberal-minded people. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the differences between us are just like you would say center-right, I would say center-left. I mean, it's it's like, how do you read? How do you read the polls? You know, yeah. you know but I think I think you're right. Your, your general point is right that like, so I'm I'm left left not center left right is is the country ever going to be in a place where it is like uniformly aligned with my views on both social and economic issues no it's not um at the same time though like i i do think that uh there are misalignments between the views of the general public and the politics that we get um the politics we get i think are measurably to the right of where I think the public is, even though they're not all progressives. Um, and, you know, the fact that Donald Trump was the president, despite the fact that m most of the people who turned out did not want Donald Trump to be the president, he didn't even get a plur plurality, like that that tells you a lot. Um, and that matters. But, you know, as I said at the very beginning, like it, it's not like there's ever going to be, I think, you know, a utopian future for us where everybody is kind of avowedly progressive on all the issues I'd like them to be progressive on. In fact, in, you know, free liberal societies, you get this kind of constant generation of new things to argue about, new things to fight about, you know? So people who can, I mean, I think this is actually one of the, the big tensions that underpins all of the cancel culture and woke stuff like i think at, at root a lot of it is just look here are some journalists and writers who thought that they were pretty progressive uh who you know maybe they were they were old enough to have been protesters in the 60s or something and they you know they supported the civil rights movement and they supported uh you know first and second wave feminism and and they they consider themselves open-minded people and then all of a sudden you have a new set of concerns emerge that they don't know how they feel about, um, that they have maybe some innate kind of hesitance about and, and revulsion towards. Um, and that unsettles their sense that they are kind of on the progressive vanguard, 
right? Mm. That they are on the, the side of light and truth. People are saying, no, you're not, because you, ha- you fail to consider this other group of people that is just now kind of arising to make their concerns really known in the public sphere. Um, and that generates conflict. Um, and I think that's just like a natural part of liberal society. Like if you give people independence of mind, political independence, uh, people can speak freely, they can argue freely, um, people begin to, you know, challenge existing norms and existing institutions in novel ways. And it, it happens over and over and over again. There's never a point where everything is settled and fine and done. Somebody says, well, what about this? And that's kind of the bargain that we make in liberal society. Um, you know, so that's always been my kind of perspective and, and attitude uh, towards wokeness, whatever. I mean, I've always called myself woke just because I think it gets a rise out of people. But also because, like, I think that, I think that the general impulse is good. Like, there are, are there people who get carried away and are there people who say, like, zany things? Sure, of course. Right. But that's, again, that's part of the bargain. And I, I think that's, that's part of what you have to deal with um, in the process of sort of gradually or, or constantly reinterrogating society are we doing well enough have we have we considered everybody you know um are 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 we are we doing enough like that that i think those are good impulses to have those are good things to ask yourself all the time if you want society to work uh well and equitably for for everyone so we're now we're now far afield from the initial question that you asked um but yeah i mean i i think for that reason this idea of like a universally progressive America. Well, what it means to be progressive, I guess I'm trying to say, is going to change constantly yeah. over and over again. It's never going to be settled and done. Um, That's also part of the problem. It's never, I mean, there's always something new. It's this endless process of finding new cultural issues to promote and advocate for. And um, I think that's part of the frustration that it never ends and there's no clear set of principles undergirding the overall approach. It never ends, but I don't think it's intrinsically chaotic because at the same time as you are saying, we have to consider this, we have to think about this in a new way, other questions become settled and maybe those questions get brought up again. But there's never a point where an absolutely everything is up for discussion all the time, right? We, so we had a debate about slavery, it's over, it's done. Like we had a debate about whether or not women ought to be uh, considered equal. In, in American society and, and, and in American politics. That's, that's done in this society. And we've moved on to other things. Um, but yeah, it, it can be unsettling. And I just think that if you, if you take the individual dignity of every person in society seriously, if you take that tenant of liberalism seriously, I think it inexorably puts you in a place where you have to deal with that contingency and that kind of unsettledness as part of the price you pay for living in a free society. I just think that's something we have to kind of suck up and own. And, and you know, there are ways that we can, you know, institutionalize conflict so we're not all killing each other all the time. You know, there are ways that we can create stable processes for adjudicating disputes. Um, but there's never a point where you are, you are over and done with disputes and society is great and you don't have to think about anything anymore. That's just not, it's not in the cards. Okay, I like a lot of what you said, Osita, but actually, you know, I, I believe that politics is 
at least in part, about conflict and contentiousness and that polarization can actually be a benefit in the sense that having in a polarized society, hopefully not too polarized, but with some foundational differences that people get animated about, that does produce um, a more vibrant, if messy, politics, but more views are able to come to the fore and be expressed. And I think that's a good thing compared to, say, the post 9-11 period where it was very restricted discourse around, you know, bipartisan consensus and unity. And we saw where all of that led. Um, but at the same time, you, you have written a piece that was titled. I mean, you didn't choose the title, presumably, but uh, and the GOP, which sounds a little bit more radical. Mm -hmm. So hearing you up until now, you know, you sound pretty easygoing and, and just pretty comfortable with the fact that there are going to be right wing views in society and, you know, we're going to have to live with them. And it's there's never going to be some kind of complete leftist victory. I haven't read it in a while and I hope you don't mind me bringing it up. But sure. you also but you also wrote an article. I, I don't know exactly how to describe the argument, but it was something along the lines of abolishing the U.S. Constitution or something to that effect. Yeah, but it right. sounds here like you're willing to work within the constitutional framework. So, I mean, how radical? Well, yeah. I'm willing to work within the constitutional framework to ultimately change the constitutional framework over time. Uh, I think it ought to be done. I'm writing a book about why it should be done. But yeah, I think the constitution is bad and we should we should get rid of it and replace it with another one. Um and that's not, I don't think that's like a hair on fire left-wing thing to say. I mean, law professors, constitutional law professors, political scientists have been critiquing aspects of the Constitution for many years now. Um, people who wouldn't consider themselves ideologically left-wing. So I, I don't think that's a radical argument. But point of clarification, ends, yeah, just immediately, how, but how does that happen? Because if, it, if that's, changing the Constitution requires two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states... Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems just implausible as a, as a starting point. It just so well. You have to build. You have to build support, right? You 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 can't. It's, this is not something I think should happen tomorrow. I think it'll take a hundred years, or at least, to get to a point where there's enough public consensus and there's enough consensus about what democracy means that most people are willing to say, "Okay, we're we've had enough of this. Well, let's let's design some new political institutions," right? So I do think you have to build a kind of sixty, seventy percent, you know. Uh, majority within the American public to make this happen for real and to have the country uh, stably endure through the process. Um, yeah, we can talk. We can talk about that. I can talk about that for another hour or so. But I wanted, I wanted to get to your uh, to your thing about and the GOP. So to be very concrete about it, the anecdote or the story that begins that piece is the uh, the Roy Moore uh, election in Alabama a couple of years ago. For people who've already forgotten, I think a lot of people have already forgotten this. Uh, I think it was in 20, 2017, 2018, I can't remember now. Um, there was an election and uh, Republican voters put up Roy Moore, this guy who beyond being a kind of right-wing extremist was also credibly accused of sexual assault and molesting, I think a 14-year-old girl. Initially when those allegations came out, you had Republican figures, Mitch McConnell, I, Ronald McDaniel McDaniel um, come out and say, well, we can't have this. This this is like beyond the pale. You know, this is not the kind of person we want to have in the Senate. Then Trump basically says, well, I, I still back this guy. And then the RNC and the other institutions of the party go ahead and, and back him as the Republican Party's official candidate in that state. 
Um, and now, of course, you know, however many years later, Republicans are all about finding the groomers and the child abusers uh, on the other side of the aisle and, and, you know, accusing elementary school teachers of, of you know, abusing children if they happen to be gay or mention that they're gay, right? Does all of that have to be a part of a conservative politics in America? I don't think so. I don't think that there's anything in that that is sort of an intrinsic or, or a natural outcome of there being a lot of conservative people in the United States. I think that is the product of a lot of decisions that were made by specific people within you know, the, the Republican Party's political apparatus as it exists today. They did not have to back Roy Moore. And, you know, they, they, that was not a seat that Democrats are going to be able to keep for very long in any case. Like, there was, no, there was no reason for them to do it. But I think a lot of people, specific people, had incentives to bring that about. Um, it does not have to be the case that, like, the way that you talk about education and schools and curricula, um, you know, it, you, you don't have to accuse first and second grade teachers of being groomers to have to have that policy debate. You see what I'm saying? Like there's 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 a difference between a conservative politics and what we have now um on the ground concretely that the Republican Party is doing and involved in. I think I think we should acknowledge that gap and not tell ourselves that it's just, you know, because they're gonna be conservative people, we have to deal with all of these terrible things. I don't think that's true. Well so let me let me maybe, you know, again hearing you talk, I think I can reformulate what I was getting at earlier about, you know, the people and leadership and institutions and things like that. I mean, what 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 really the point is here is that maybe your argument could be boiled down to is we should expect elites to have virtue and not indulge in demagoguery as a means of politics. And in that framework, one said one assumes that I think if one looks at demagoguery like that, one stops talking about the people as being inherently good or predisposed to one thing or the other, but more as a blank slate of sorts. And demagoguery is an attempt to awaken the sort of meanest, darkest spirits within the electorate and mobilize them and weaponize them. And maybe one way to look at what we're seeing with Fox News right now is, is sort of reaping the whirlwind in the sense that this has been whipped up uh, has been whipped up, has been part of the sort of policy toolkit, or not the policy toolkit, but the election toolkit for a long time. And so now, you know, now the tiger has sort of got its own sort of set of mind. And that's that's really what's underlying, uh, you know, as you look at that Dominion lawsuit and everything else, the sort of decision-making in Fox is their, their numbers are plummeting. They're losing as soon as after January 6th, they see that, 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 that they're, they're uh, their audience is revolting at their attempts to even try and and sort of you know steer anything that way. And the decision is well, it's a business. You got to go where the where the viewers are. And you know that's sort of uh, the explanation of that. But you know, to me, that that sort of also inverts it doesn't invert, but I think it 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 complicates. Quite frankly, I think I think both of yours different positions on this because um, you know if if. If politics is just sort of, you know, a bunch of stuff that that like is is played out in front of a neutral crowd that can react to acts of virtue as well as acts of villainy and can be mobilized one way or the other, and that's democratic politics, uh, then preferences, you know, sort of fall down a little bit. Maybe progress can be measured as, you know, progressive ideas winning out over time. 
And so, you know, winning the stage over time, but, you know, people are neutral and kind of kind of a, a rotten mess, largely, that can be that the worst things can be always activated in them. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how to how to how to articulate it better than so, that. But, you know, it, it's it's if that's the case, um, basically what what we're talking about then is you need a better leadership class. You need a more virtuous a more yeah, and by virtuous, so, I don't mean you know, but but you know what I mean, just like not indulging in yeah. this sort of stuff. Because the the worry about democracy is that there is no virtue inherent in people, right. and you need virtuous people to model it somehow, right? So I would I would I would I would change the way you formulate it. It's not that I believe that the leadership has has to be more virtuous, and that the absence of virtue is the main problem. It is that people are incentivized by political structures to act in a certain way. Right. So the fact that you can put up somebody like Roy Moore and all of America can be like, oh, my God, I hate this person. Why did the Republican Party do this? What does this mean about the Republican Party? And that not necessarily redounding to the disadvantage of the Republican Party because they have structural advantages. That means that they have more incentives to do things like put it forward Roy Moore, who excites the, the base of the party, that everybody who has jobs in the Republican Party is responsible for catering to in order to get elected, in order to... Uh, gain positions within the party infrastructure. It's, it, we have certain institutions and structures that incentivize to people to behave a little bit worse than they always would. I don't think we, we need virtue. I think that our political system has been designed in ways that are very obviously defective. And if we change them a little bit, it wouldn't turn everybody into angels, but we don't need to. I don't think you need to have angels in society in order for politics to work well. Um, we have examples of other countries around the world, in Europe, etc., like who that that have a better, healthier democratic politics. Um, they're going through some right-wing authoritarianism, you know. Now you're seeing the rise of forces that are comparable to Trump. Um, but I think, on the whole, like we we have not perf we we haven't come close to 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 an ideal here in this country. Um, we 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 are very obviously lacking in basic ways. And I think that one of the ways in which our defects uh, make themselves present in our politics is in the continuing radicalization of a Republican Party that doesn't have to be as radical as it is. But, 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 but Ocidia, as you, as you sort of suggested, um, you know, in, in most Western European democracies, you have proportional representation parliamentary systems and you, in many ways, the far right is stronger than it is here in America. Um, you know, Italy just elected its first ever far right um, prime minister. In Sweden, the largest party in the governing coalition is a far right party with neo-Nazi origins. Um, I mean, the list goes on. And, you know, the fact that it's not a unique American trait that we're seeing these the rise of the rise and even sometimes the outright victory of radical or far right populism across the globe. And, you know, we probably should mention Israel at some point, Philippines, yeah. mm -hmm. Brazil. It is a long list. India, of course. No, but um, but, but, but so, Israel, so that, just to jump in on Israel, I mean, I think the, the Israel point to me is is we can get into the details of it, but it's a proportional system with a single mandate. You know, so it's pretty damn democratic is the interesting thing there. Now, of course, right. their party politics are crazy and, and the way these things end up hashed out. But look, I, 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 I just I'll, I'll let you finish your thoughts, Shadi. I mean, I, I think you're 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 uh, you're right to point out 
you know, other other problems. But at the same time, Osita, I do agree. You know, I mean, I think institutional reform has a I'm not saying it doesn't exist. That's all I wanted to sort of qualify there. Obviously, sure. it's a role. But go on, Shadi. Finish your finish. But your I would I would also that. just add th this issue of the Republican Republican Party leaders just being more radical than they should be, and they're incentivized to have you know increasingly crazy ideas. That seems to me to just be a function of how politics and political parties work. You have political entrepreneurs. You have politicians who try to accentuate the differences between them and the opposing party because they mm -hmm. want to rally support. They want to stand out on on issues they think they can mobilize around. And I think Democrats sure. do something uh, quite similarly. I you know I don't think that um, the, the intense let's say versions of wokeness that dominate the cultural mainstream in America are representative of the American population. But if we look at pretty much, you know, most major institutions, mainstream institutions, whether it's universities, corporations, um, media outlets, they do uh, and increasingly um, the, the medical system as well, I should note, and law schools. I mean, there's a whole bunch, uh, there has been a really profound shift. And even recently, the Biden administration announced a national DEI strategy, diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are like, you know, somewhat unusual, some might even say radical ideas that not a lot of ordinary Democrats are waking up in the morning and saying, we need more DEI departments and we need the national government to promote that. And democratic uh, democratic operatives and officials are incentive, apparently they think this is in their interest and they're doing it. Also, maybe they really believe this, believe this stuff as ridiculous as, as it might sound to many of us. So, I mean, I, I just, it seems to me that there's no way to really get around this and it's a it's a permanent feature of not just American politics, but of politics in an age where class is no longer the dividing factor between parties. It's the primary cleavage is around religion, culture and identity. Yeah, so I think you should separate the universities stuff from the Democratic Party stuff. Um, which isn't to say that you're you're not talking about the essentially the same kinds of cultural politics in both cases, but I think there's a difference. Like I think that universities have long been, at least for the last half century or so, a little bit more liberal than the American public at large. Like you had communist universities in like the 40s and 50s that they tried to get rid of, and there were not very many communists, you know, in the, within the American public at large. So I don't think that's a new thing. That's just sort of what comes out of universities, um, socio cultural environment. But the Democratic Party stuff, um, I think, is is a product of the similar dynamics that you see um, on the right that I was talking about before. It's like, who comes out to determine who the candidates are going to be um, when the general election comes around? Like, it's, it's the most dedicated people in the party, the most ideologically-minded people in the party who come uh, and vote in primaries. They also happen to be the people most likely to give money Right. So there's, like, you know, to your point, there's a kind of natural incentive, at least given the way that we've structured our political system um, today, for the parties to cater to these subsets of their wider coalitions. I think that's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I think that that too is something that, that might be addressed with different institutional designs, if not at the level of primaries, then, you know, with things like proportional representation. And I don't think that it's, it's a cure-all, you know, I think that there are a lot of complex factors leading to the surge in support for politicians like Modi or Netanyahu and whoever else around the world. Um, I don't mean to suggest that it's purely a matter of institutional design. Um, but I think in the American context, at least, um, it seems fairly clear that most Americans don't like the kinds of politics that Donald Trump has put on offer. That might change. They might build a genuine popular majority for it. But they don't. I, don't, I think most Americans have pretty definitively, definitively rejected all of that. And yet, we're still in a place where it's, it's entirely conceivable that Donald Trump could win again. It's entirely conceivable that a lot of candidates inspired by him could win again. Um, you know, it, it, it's still shaping what happens in the House. Like, it's still shaping. Like, it, it, there's, there's this disconnect there that I think even if we can't fully extricate ourselves from all the forces that are leading to a resurgence of right-wing politics around the world, there are things that exist within our political system that are exacerbating it. Um, and again, you know, I think that that is why we can't say it, it's merely a matter of virtue. I, I don't expect most politicians uh, to even be especially good people. Forget about angelic people. Like I think that the, the personality type that goes into politics is the personality, personality type I'm, I'm personally inclined to be quite wary of uh, in general. Um, but I think that there, there are things that we can do to, to help ourselves a little bit more than, than we've been able to. But you, let me, let me, you let seem me just, to have a lot of faith in, you, in the people. I'm just struck by this, that you do seem to believe in the not, wisdom of faith. that are really fundamental. No, it's, it's not. I mean, I, as, as I said, like in 2004, George W. Bush, Republican Party win, like 50 point something percent of the vote. Like it's like a straight up, they won more votes than the other party. It's not happened a lot for the Republican Party in recent years, but they did it. They did it on the basis of war jingoism for a terrible war that killed at least minimum half a million people, probably millions of people, um, and partially on the basis of demagoguery about gay marriage, right? I'm not saying that I, you know, that the American people are always going to judge rightly, or that, again, you know, this, this anti-Trump majority, which I think exists, is a durable one, and people are not going to you know, embrace uh, right-wing politics more broadly. I think it, it's possible. Um, but the odds have been tilted in the right's favor in ways that I think that we can correct. Um, you know, I think I, I don't. I don't see that there's. I don't think there's a contradiction in that position. So, so I think that we've we've made things slightly worse for ourselves. But, but here, here, here's here's. I think I can now maybe formulate a little more clearly. And honestly, we we we've had at this a little bit in our reading group, so it's 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 fine to sort of surface it here. I guess here's here's the pessimism, the pessimistic take. Um, I think to have democracy function, you have to have some kind of um, broad consensus, and that's where I think the faith element comes in, you know, whether you share it or not. But let's say we need to let's let, let me assert that one needs that kind of broad consensus or at least the ability to mobilize a broad consensus, even if it doesn't exist independent of mobilization. When I talked about virtue to you there, I, I didn't mean virtue in, in the classical sort of Greek Aristotelian sense. Um, you know, I, I, I meant I meant it much more narrowly, like like basically you shouldn't demagogue. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I guess the argument that the, the real pessimistic argument, not just for America, but, but for a lot of the democracies that are going through trouble, um, 
you know, by the time this comes out, I happen to know that, you know, the, the new Freedom House report's coming out, which is actually semi-optimistic, semi, uh, showing trends getting better for democracies. So, uh, you know, be warned for that story coming out. But, but, but regardless, I think one of the challenges for democracies is, in fact, um, the, the, uh, the broadening of the public sphere, the allowing of people to actually figure out how different they are rather than how, how common they are in something. So, and then- Which is good. And then that incentivizes demagogues. And this is where the question of, of what are the limits of what a politician can and should do to capitalize on these divisions. And so, so this is why, you know, uh, it is fascinating to watch what's happening in Israel right now, um, where you have a deeply polarized society uh, that is that cleaves around, uh, 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 down the sort of religious secular divide in a big way. Um, that, uh, you know, through the legitimate operations of its perhaps flawed, but in, you know, in some sectors, people say that we should have, uh, you know, proportional representation and even single mandate districts for it because that would be more democratic. So certainly by many measures, a more democratic system than we have. Um, mm -hmm. yields this government uh, that, you know, again, not fully representative, but representative enough by the rules of the system that has yielded such a polarization right now. And here one can say, because uh, Bibi is a demagogue, he has demagogues in his government who are pushing a deeply unpopular judicial reform. We can argue about the is merits it deeply, of that one. Sorry, Demir, but is it deeply unpopular? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's unpopular enough with 50%, let's say, arbitrarily of the population, that it's leading to uh, the threat of extrajudicial, extra-legal politics at this point, of, you know, potentially the army walking out or members of the army walking out, uh, tech sector in revolt, uh, you know, massive protests. I saw, I think Tom Friedman's column today extrapolated the numbers that are uh, protesting in Tel Aviv, said that would be something like 8.6 million Americans protesting if that was to be mm, measured mm. on a per capita basis. I mean, these are, these are, these are, 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 are these are not small things. And, and the country, uh, from what I can tell as, you know, not Jewish, not Israeli, is, is at a real inflection point in its democracy by the rules of the democracy itself, it is leading mm -hmm. itself to some kind of precipice. Now we can be optimistic about this. Shadi has cited many a time that, you know, democracies, uh, these democratic habits are sticky enough and these things resolve themselves after a lot of, you know, uh, drama and, and brinksmanship. But in fact, the habits sort of reassert and some something emerges and then and then on to the next stop. We'll see, I guess. And, and you know, I think there's an argument that that is what will happen in Israel, too. But I, I guess the, the pessimistic question here for me is, um, is that question about, uh, you know, is it that democracies have worked at all uh, to a large extent because you you didn't have that much pub public participation, that the more public participation you have, uh, the more sort of polarized and divisive it is, the more you have that, despite, I think I'll grant you everything you'll say about our system incentivizing certain things more than others and creating these sorts of things, but it, but could it be also that, that in our modern sense that people are getting more political, more engaged, more divided by this, the incentives are also organically coming from that, that really empower demagogues to do the unvirtuous things. And by unvirtuous here, I mean knowingly pursue a politics which leads to democratic dissolution down the line, because that's what demagoguery leads to naturally. That's and if I could I just add that. to put a finer point on this point is when you have existential politics, it's easier 
to demagogue at just a very basic level when everything feels at stake because you're dealing with foundational divides people can weaponize that more easily but that doesn't change the fact that there are deep foundational divides in a lot of these societies and this is where i might disagree with demir broad consensus depends what you mean by broad consensus but clearly there are many democracies that don't have a broad consensus or no longer have a broad consensus but are still democratic and are still functioning for all of their flaws I think the U.S. is actually a pretty good example of a country that can continue um, lacking a broad con consensus on foundational issues, but survive and might not be the ideal, but I'm certainly not a believer that American democracy is going to end um, anytime soon. So, I, you know. But, Shadi, just, just to jump in there, I mean, it, that's, a, that's a belief proposition, and you can say it hasn't yet. But, you know, my argument was not about that. My argument was that, in fact, we've seen an unprecedented amount of mobilization of the people, sort of unprecedented in the history of humanity, on an individual level of participation. And that, in fact, uh, a democratic system that is based on representation, that is based on mobilizing consensus, is actually ill-equipped to deal with that level of pluralism, that level of political engagement. That, in fact, a direct democracy is an absurd concept that, that necessarily falls apart. And, and so, you know, it may have worked so far. We are detecting a level of degradation that wasn't there before. And I just put it out to you as a, as a pessimistic case. I'm not saying I believe it fully, but I'm just putting it out to both of you to sort of react to to that as a as a theory of the case right now. So I don't know, Sia, sure. what so are I you? Mean, yeah. So I mean, let, let me think through, I mean, American history, because that's that's just what I know most about um, relative to other po political systems and, and political struggles elsewhere. Um, so like a hundred years ago, the American electorate was obviously deeply constrained relative to now. Um, women had just gotten the right to vote, African-Americans, uh, across much of the country could not vote in practice. Um, you know, people were less literate and you had, on top of significant ideological divides that are familiar to us, so left and right, you know, you had a, a more genuine left in some respects back then than you do now. Um, you had all of these kinds of ethnic and religious tensions that have kind of fallen by the wayside. It really mattered whether or not you were a Catholic in 1923 in the way that it doesn't now. Uh, white ethnic identity, the Polish or Czech, you know, uh, that mattered a lot. Anti-Semitism was a much larger force in American society. Um, and I think as a consequence, you know, you had a politics um, where even though you did not have a January 6th and a president of the United States refusing to acknowledge losing the election um, and that kind of drama that we saw play out in all of our screens, you still had a politics that was pretty damn violent uh, and raucous and fractious uh, and where people were killed, people were lynched. Um, you know, people hated each other in ways that make, I think, the way that we talk about polarization now and political, uh, you know, political sentiments now seem a little bit silly, honestly. Um, we, we had really, truly deep, um, fatally deep political divisions um, back then. And I think that's been the case for most of American history. But as we expanded the electorate, as we've granted more rights to more people in this country, um, I'm not saying that this is 
causation here. But it seems significant to me that even though we have more participation in government now than we did back then, we do not see, to Shadi's point, um, a kind of return to or a worsening of the kind of conditions that shaped American politics for most of our history. I think by comparison, our politics now is as difficult as it is, um, as difficult as things are, is, is, is still kind of stable and normal and I don't know. I, I, I don't know that we should expect those conditions to endure forever. Um, but so you, I, I, so I think, you describe, you would describe U.S. politics today as stable and normal. I mean, I, I, I more I kind of agree with you. No, by comparison to the political conditions that prevailed for most of our history, the political conditions that prevailed before we started a war that ripped the country yeah. in two and killed hundreds of thousands of people. You know, okay. by compare, like this, this, this is a kind of low ebb, and things get better, things get worse over time. Hmm. Um, but you know, I, I don't know that we've seen, at least in our experience, uh, a real justification for the idea that getting more people into politics and more regular political political participation and broader political participation, something that necessarily corrodes politics and makes it, you know, unworkably dysfunctional. Can I just clarify one point, though? You know, it's it's, it's what I'm getting at is less about expanding the franchise or anything like that, um, because I would argue that what you've just described is a different process, which is one of um, an elite uh, being inexorably dragged towards uh, a different set of values than it may have, start, may have started out with, uh, largely through, uh, you know, the quiet work of people who were at, um, uh, on the, on the, on the, we're getting the short end of the stick, we're uh, below the boot, right? So, so that is a kind of progress. Um, I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is, is not saying that by expanding the franchise or including women or uh, or blacks or Catholics or um, or or any category is leading to uh, you know an ungovernability because you know I'll take I just restate your point in a different way um, and it's something I alluded to earlier it's it's this is why I think the trans issue ultimately is going to be a loser. Uh, because because the concept of in-group is actually quite malleable and is redefinable. And that's that's partly the role of both activists on the losing end and uh, elites that can sort of adapt and choose to, you know, take advantage of this when the moment is right, as we've seen with gay marriage and the rest of it. You see a, a big pivot and an inflection point, elites shift, no big deal. It's, it's my point is something more, the, more about uh, a sense of in-group and out-group within, and which requires to me a sense of kind of cohesion. I'm not saying that cohesion ever existed. I'm saying that the fact that you didn't have mass media, you didn't have people, quite frankly, as politicized, political, not even politicized, let's just call it political. They were, they were by and large takers of politics and politics was a sort of affair that, that happened at the highest levels and maybe at the activist levels and people just sort of took it. I, I guess my my pessimistic case is something else. Is that is that now everyone's a politician. Now everyone is democratic in a way that they weren't before. And I'm wondering whether that is leading to some of the feedback loops we're seeing. Because you know, if you if you take the progressive story about enfranchisement off, and I grant you all of that, as I just did, you you look at maybe Andrew Jackson and Trump as the sort of moments that that are you know. Um, 
challenging to the status quo by by activating through a kind of populist demagoguery the people, whatever that is, to, you know, ends that were anti-institutional, maybe put it that way. And I do think this is something new. Demir, I'm, but I'm, I'm confused because it seems like you're describing some of these recent developments as pejorative, unless I'm misunderstanding you. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know oh, me. Okay. I, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not committed to democracy sure. like you are. No, you but it's that. not even about democracy. It's about having a messy, vibrant, a lot contentious politics where diverse groups can express their preferences. That's my theory. Um, that that's this is this is this is well, my well, theory I mean, and challenge to you. Okay. Well, I you know just. You know, as, as listeners may know, I mean, I would take America today over America in 2002 any day, like the last vestiges of That's, a bipartisan consensus where everyone was on the same page. My, my question uh, isn't about—but my question is just, just to clarify it, and, and then, you know, we can get on, like, what you'd prefer for, for justice and, and, like, goodness reasons. But it's my, not about my, justice or goodness. It, my it's my about question is, what, is sustainability. Mm. That's all. That's the, the main question I have for both of you. And that's what is the question is, do you find that credible? Is an artificial, cons- is an artificial consensus that valorizes a stupid war, is that sustainable? It clearly wasn't. Well, I mean, it was a stupid war. It didn't end the Republic or anything like that. But it did end the Republican Party as we know it. It did, it did contribute to a fraying of the consensus on uh, the post stuff not- that you like about America is great and needs to fix the world. Okay, we're going to get like into different <laughs> things about like the death of neoconservatism here. That's neither here nor there. What I'm getting at is 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 the narrow question about populism, uh, a polity, the exploitation of I think you know forces that are inherent in any polity and that are more exploitable, even as what you say a more vibrant and plural and contentious sort of society. I'm saying, is there a flip side that a more plural, vibrant and contentious society of a more active polity basically incentivizes uh, demagogues to basically take advantage of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a possibility. Um, I don't discount that as a possibility. So you know, if people are more ideologized, they get heated up about things that they might not otherwise if their interest in politics was, was passive. So back 100 years ago, one of the other things that was different about politics is that whether you were a Democrat or a Republican was was a matter of all kinds of things that had nothing to do with your political beliefs. Like maybe the, the precinct captain knocks on your door and says, you're a Democrat. Okay. Right. You know, right. <laughs> your, your, your buddy from high school is a Democrat. That means you're, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't, it wasn't as, as tightly tied to a real system of belief as it is now. And that's something that can you know that can that can further radicalization, um, sure. But I don't know. I just I just I, I look at the the American political system, and I see that the things that we tell ourselves are aspects of the system that are supposed to be stabilizing, and consensus building, are actually not. And at least in this particular political context, it might not be true in the UK or in France or in Israel or in, in India. At least in this particular political context, those stabilizing things are actually making the situation worse. And at least right now, if we had a more democratically representative system, our immediate problems that we're worried about um, would be less worrying. They would present a whole host of new problems, potentially. Um, But when it comes to the things that are fueling and fomenting right-wing extremism here, you know, I think that there are just a few very basic 
answers that, that will not, if we solve them, eliminate conservatism. We are never going to get rid of Fox News <laughs> as a matter of policy. Uh, I think people should stop dreaming about that. There's always going to be, if it wasn't the Fox News, it would be something else. In fact, there are like three or four competitors now that if, if Fox News were to tumble, would, would fill up that vacuum, right? So I'm not saying that, you know, I, I have a vision of how to fix American politics and eliminate the risk of a demagoguery and, and make everybody like each other. That's, that's, that's not... That's not what I'm after. Um, I'm after a vision of American politics where you have to compete for the support of not just the people in your particular corner, but a legitimate mass majority um, of the public to get things done and to have your way. Okay, uh, that sounds like something is, th- that's fascinating, Osita, because I can imagine a maligned centrist saying something similar <laughs> that we want to have broader yeah. catch-all parties. You want politicians to move towards the median voter instead of focusing oh, on their own it won't, tribe. It won't necessarily. It won't necessarily. So it won't necessarily be a matter of uh, all-encompassing mass parties. I mean, you know, people have different debates about what this would look like and how to best accomplish it. And it, it wouldn't necessarily be a matter of, uh, you know, always sticking to what the median. Voter wants it's 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 more complicated than that, and I spend a lot of my book trying to work through the, the difficulty of what a majority means. Um, but I, th- I think our, our our starting point should be: if you are an eligible voter in this country, uh, the power that you have in a political system should not be a matter of whether you happen to live in Kansas or New York City, right? That is the case today. Like it matters a lot whether you live in Kansas, or New York City. And that shapes American politics in all kinds of very profound ways that I think are partially responsible for Donald Trump. I mean, it seems like petty and small and whatever. This is like nerd bullshit, but it's it's really not. It really does matter. I wrote this piece okay, about but let's January invi- 6th. Mm. No, I, I wrote this piece about January 6th on the anniversary uh, in January 2020, uh, 2022. They made the I think that there are a lot of Republican voters who have been encouraged to believe that they constitute a legitimate majority of the country because they keep winning elections. And so when they lose elections, something underhanded has to have happened, right? We are the bulk of the country. And if we lose an election, that means somebody somewhere is cheating. Why else would we control the Senate for so many times? Why, why, why else would we have been elected president so many times? It's because that we are the true body of the American people. And Joe Biden won because he did something wrong that we have to investigate and figure out. When in fact, the Republicans win partially because they have these advantages that people don't understand. And that gives us this distorted picture of American politics and what the country looks like. We think that California is this sea of blue voters, right? That we, we, don't, we don't talk about the fact that there are a lot of Republicans in California, right? We think that New York City is the sea of, of blue. In fact, there are more people in New York City, New York City alone, who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 than in both the Dakotas combined. You know, it's, it's Conversely, there are liberals in North Dakota, right? But we, the, the, all our inability to see this reality, because our political system is designed in this particular way, is something that leads to and facilitates the kind of polarization that people are always up in arms about. Right? But, we see ourselves in these two neatly divided camps. You can divorce if you want to. Right? You can you could, you could split them apart neatly, cleave them apart, and you'd have a red America and a blue America, and and these would be the two sides that would uh, that would that would 
that would be at odds with each other in you know, that arrangement. But it's interesting the way that you described how the Republican Party sees itself as representing a natural majority, so they get confused when they lose. I mean, you could easily describe liberals and Democrats in a similar way that when they lose, there has to be some kind of external explanation, whether it's um, Russia Gate or the fact Fox News or the fact sure. that Americans don't have enough information. And if we give them the right information, then they'll vote in the, in the right way. I, I feel like this is like a pretty broad based thing that each party thinks that it represents America. I, I, I do want to note, though, that the GOP in the midterms um, if you take the overall popular vote on a national level, yeah, they won, got more votes than... significantly more votes sure. than Democrats did. So as we end here, I, I would want to maybe pose like a worst or a, a, a somewhat worst case scenario is what happens if the American people on balance, you know, as an overall articulation of mass sentiment, move further towards the right and become more illiberal and if people keep on voting for illiberal outcomes that go against your preferences, how, I mean, how would you react to that? Because um, it is plausible. I know that you're saying that you don't think that's going to happen, but mm -hmm. you know, who knows? And you know, there's obviously black swan events that could push Americans more in that direction. There could be sure. some sort of religious awakening, whatever it might be. If the, what happens if the people lean center right and not just like vaguely center right, but center right in a way that you find to be distasteful or even just like fundamentally bad. Yeah, sure. So I'll I'll even give you an example of of what could bring us about. Um, I I've been troubled by the implications, the political implications of climate change for some time now. Right. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that has fueled this surge of right wing sentiments in Europe has been kind of the the after effects of, of the war on terror and the Iraq war that destabilized the region and led to these um, to, you know increased immigration to to the region. I mean, me as a matter of policy, I I am for his open immigration system. It seems uh, feasible. You know, I I've, I've you know I, I don't know that you would be wrong to call me a kind of open borders person by by inclination. But I, th I think that the you know as a one of the practical political effects. Um, of these changes is that it it is led to this kind of you know deep anxiety about changing culture in in Europe and people have been able to exploit that to to the benefit of these right wing Democrats people like Marine Le Pen you know in France and and so on I think that you know if if the projections seem to be true about climate migration you're going to see many many more people try to leave the global south. Um, for areas where you know they'll be able to to build new homes after the ones that they've lived in have been flooded, or you know things are t the conditions around them are too arid to live anymore. Um, you know, again, me as somebody on you know the left um, would say, look, we, we we just let these people in. I, mean, I don't know that there's there's a another moral alternative. Um, we we do what we can to to accommodate them. Uh, do I think the majority of the American people are going to have that reaction? Well, I, probably not. Uh, so, you know, that, that I think is one thing that might lead to uh, the deepening of nativist right-wing politics in this country. Uh, that could happen 
very, very soon, within the next 20, 25 years. Um, and, you know, you ask what to do about it. I don't know that there is a thing to do about it, but try to convince people that democrat democracy is worth preserving and, in fact, expanding. That's that's all you can do. Just do the work of showing people democracy is good. Uh, individual people, no matter where who they are, where they come from, what their religions are, what race they are, their gender identity, individual people are worthy of your respect as equals. Um, and you try to build a politics around that. Uh, I think it would be helpful, too, if we manage to convince people that democracy is something that have can have material benefits for them beyond just being an abstract ideal that they are told by a civics teacher <laughs> to respect, right? So democracy at work. If people... Uh, are participating in an economy where democracy is gaining them raises, is improving their working conditions, um, is allowing them to resolve disputes that happen at work. They become more acculturated to de democracy as a system of belief, and they're more willing to defend it in the political realm as well. I think this would also reduce inequality and make our political system uh, less a plaything of the wealthy. You could have more, um, you know, you, you, that would be another thing that would equalize the distribution of political power as well. Um, so yeah, I think we should push people to think in that direction. I think it, it would be good for political democracy if it weren't just this kind of airy thing that we expect people to latch onto, uh, just for its own sake. Show people that it can materially work in very concrete ways and they'll, uh, they'll take a shine to it. That's my hope at least. I might be wrong, but that's, that's the only thing to try. Well, Osita, uh, I mean, we're going to end here because Shadi's got to run. I think maybe, I don't know, I'm not going to say where he's going to run, but uh, I don't I, He's got to run in any case at this point. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, uh, I want to just point out that uh, I'm glad that, that your answer started in a pessimistic place because that's where my happy place is. Um, I'm really glad, though, also that it ended on politics because I think that is where I think the three of us agree most, uh, that, that like really this is this is a political question and like we need to think about things in terms of politics that's at least how i think about these things and and i think that's as, as good a place to end it as any and i won't let shoddy jump in right now because there was there were prompts there to to get him engaged about the instrumental <laughs> value of democracy which is sure to trigger him but stay untriggered shoddy we'll let that one slide yeah until next yeah. time osita thanks a lot this is great yeah thanks so much osita thanks bye